0: Man, good morning! Wow, there's a lot of you guys. You can can stand up with us. We're gonna sing out to our God. Just worship Him together. And I'm a huge fan of clapping. So if you like that sort of thing, uh, that'll be fun. (laughs) On rhythm too, whatever you like to do. Uh, But lay, let's sing out together.
1: creation, calling other nations to your prayer. They could see how much your
0: great to sing with y'all. Go ahead and take a seat.
2: Actually, before I have you bow to pray, what I'd like to do is if you have an empty spot in the middle, can you slide in and we can make a little room out on the aisles and the edges, give you a pass if you're claustrophobic and you've got a door spot or something, but for everybody else, can you slide in and try to make space on the outside if possible? We've still got people trying to work their way in. Uh, and we'll continue to be here for a few minutes. Why don't you bow your heads with me and we'll enter into a time of confession together as a body. Father, we, uh, Lord, we love to celebrate you and your greatness, uh, to make a joyful noise to you. And when we're doing that, God, it's awesome to be living as we should live, to be celebrating you the way that we should in every moment. And then, Father, we, we confess uh, that many moments of the day, many days of the week we don't celebrate you instead of praising you we disrespect your name we're often rebellious lord we often turn away and seek to satisfy ourselves in the things you give us instead of you the giver of all good things so father we confess that this morning lord we confess that we often have given up our place as the leaders of your creation. Lord, when the rocks and the trees cry out and your creation honors you as the great creator God, sometimes we don't and we confess that as sin. And Father, we ask you to change us. We thank you that you gave us your son Jesus to show us how to live, but also to give us that perfect life as a free gift. That we could just trust in you to save us, to take our sins upon yourself on the cross, and to give us your perfect life. Jesus, we thank you for giving your life for us. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship, that we would be swept along by your grace, that we would grow in the knowledge that you're a good God that loves us and has brought us back to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: I just want to sing this next song as a song of confession, continue to... Uh, just in that, in that vein, um, talking about when we come to God, uh, I guess this song sort of talks about it's not a bartering process, right? It, we come broken, and uh, God offers us His strength. Um, and so just to confess that as a people, that we still need God's strength, um, even as He's saved us and is sanctifying us, that we need Him daily to, uh, to rescue us. So let's sing these words together. See you. Sing of our God's great love for us. (laughs)
1: And how deep. in that
0: I pray that you will continue to wake us up God to open our eyes to your truth God and your love for us I pray that you will help us to see more of you God and to rejoice in who you are God who you are making us God I pray that you will um, have your way in our lives God help us to uh, hear your word now God to take it in and to live it out God I pray that you will Work that in us. We ask for your strength. That's in your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Good
2: morning again. Good morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 6. We will get there in just a second. And I have a, uh, a few more announcements. One. If you have a bulletin, anybody have a bulletin? Wave that in front of me. You have that? Well, little audience participation here. Very good. All right. Inside said bulletin, there should be a yellow insert. Um, on this yellow insert, we're asking for congregational feedback on the elder candidates we presented to you over the last several weeks. Um, Oscar Araco and Mike Harris shared their testimony with you a few weeks ago. And uh, if you approve or disapprove, if you could let us know if, on this little yellow sheet. If you disapprove, we want to know who you are. Uh, not so that we can cause you any trouble, but so that we can work out whatever problem there may be there. Uh, just understand, you, you won't be in any trouble, but but just let us know if you disapprove for some reason, uh, please sign your name on that. Uh, this is really for members, and there's been some confusion over uh, how the membership process works here. We actually have a whole page in our Constitution online and in the hallway if you want to read about that. But basically, really in summary, I would just say if, if you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, because He is your Savior, and you're coming here and partnering with us, in our mission as a church, then you are a member here. And that's really how it works. There's not uh, a thing you have to sign or anything like that. So if you consider yourself a partner with us here, we encourage you to fill this out and respond for us. And you can drop that in the offering box or uh, fold it up and leave it on the chair and somebody will grab it, I'm sure. Um, that would be great. I've got two more announcements about the women's ministry. We have the women's ministry Bible studies starting back up uh, in a couple of weeks. Janice Chisholm. Janice, will you wave your hand? She'll be up here with books and a sign-up sheet to help you register for those Bible studies. And I've got to, again, double-check. I got confused because I wrote this in my own cursive hand. And they're doing David and Daniel, which in my cursive looks the same. So Thursday, the Thursday morning, January 13th, the morning one is doing David, right? Which is this one, David. All right, ladies, if you want to do the daytime study, and both of these have childcare, but if you want to do the daytime study Thursday morning, starting the 13th, you're studying David, the Beth Moore study. And then the evening one, Monday nights, studying Daniel, the other D word, okay? So that starts Monday, January 17th, and you can sign up for both of those right up front here with Janice after the service. Please don't do it while I'm preaching. I would prefer you wait until after the service is, is done for that. Um, Some other things we want to kind of equip you with for the new year. We've got 17 books for you to buy here for 2011. And uh, I'm just kidding, but I have a few things for you to flip through maybe after the service. As we're encouraging everyone to read through the Bible in the new year, uh, for some of you, you may want some help in understanding how the scriptures all hold together. There's four books here all on that same subject. I would recommend any of them. You can come up and kind of flip through them. And the idea is that it's one story, right? We have 66 books in the Bible, but it's one story of what God is doing in the world, saving a people for himself. And these books kind of explain that. We've got Preaching Christ uh, through all of Scripture. We've got According to Plan, the one unfolding plan of Scripture. We've got The Drama of Scripture, telling it as one main drama that's taking place. And then we've got God's Big Picture. So all four of these books I would recommend, good books, just kind of help you understand how... It all ties together, so don't buy all four of them, and don't steal them, because these are my copies, but you can come flip through these afterwards, and maybe order them, yes, or permanently borrow, whatever you want to call that. The other thing is, today we're, oh, I'm doing this out of order. The other thing is, as you're reading uh, through the Bible in the New Year, you may may want study help, and these are heavy. You could do some weightlifting in the New Year with these two. Uh, but these are good study Bibles. The NIV study Bible and the ESV study Bible. There are other good ones out there, but these are kind of the two standards for me. I think these are both really good. Uh, NIV is a little simpler to understand translation. Uh, ESV is what we actually uh, tend to use here in the pews, what I tend to read out of. It's more literal. They both frustrate me at times. Sometimes they're, this one oversimplifies things. Sometimes this one makes it too hard. Uh, but they're both good translations and really good study Bibles. So you can flip through these. We also keep copies of these in the Nursery Welcome Center for you to check them out. Again, don't steal them. These are the flip-through copies we try to keep here. Um, And then we're talking about disciplines in the new year, right? A lot of you are making New Year's resolutions. These are three books kind of on the spiritual disciplines. The first one is called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. And what this does is it helps you understand how does discipline... Uh, go hand in glove with a life of grace. If we understand that salvation is a free gift and we can't do it on our own, how do we then do things and still walk in grace? And he explains that for us, helps to put that together for us. The other one is spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. This specifically goes through each classic spiritual discipline of the Christian life, helps us to understand again how we do that and walk in grace. This last one, he's a little bit outside of our tribe. He's a Quaker, but still a pretty good book and kind of a classic called Celebration of Discipline. Uh, by Richard Foster, uh, just an overview, again, of the spiritual disciplines. And we we'll encourage you to check these books out if you want to go deeper, just kind of understanding how the spiritual disciplines work in your life. Again, I'll leave these up here. You can flip through these after the service if you would like. Um, today, all right, done with that. Now, sermon. Today, we're on Matthew chapter 6. And, and Stephen, about six weeks ago, our assistant pastor, talked about this new focus of being in the Word and what it looks like to have... God's Word Change You, which is one of our new focuses for 2011. I want to talk about some of the other disciplines of the Christian life. And Jesus is kind enough to kind of lump three together. In Matthew chapter 6, he talks about giving and prayer and fasting. two, uh, Three key spiritual disciplines that really most religions have in common. And Jesus is going to help us understand how we as Christians should practice these spiritual disciplines. Because it's important that we don't think of ourselves as just like every other religion. We've talked about that a lot, right? Other religions uh, tend to focus on how you work yourself to God, but the Christian story and the Old Testament story is a God working himself down to us and helping us where we are and bringing us then back to himself. And so Jesus is going to give us a different spin on these uh, spiritual disciplines. In order for us to really understand what's going on in Matthew 6, I think we need to understand what happens in Matthew 1 through 5. Checking my time here, I'm going to give you a quick summary. Of Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Okay? You ready? All right, here we go. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Matthew is kind of what we just focused on at Christmas time, showing us that the Savior we've been waiting for has finally come. Okay? And so that's what's unveiled. That the Savior is here. This word is used again and again in the book of Matthew, fulfilled. So it was fulfilled. All these Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled. He is the Savior, He's come to save His people. In chapter four, we see that he is the new Adam, that he resists the temptations that the devil throws at him in the wilderness, right? Adam and Eve fell, all of us have fallen to temptation, but Jesus didn't fall. He resisted temptation. And so we look at that as the double imputation of Christ, right? That that he gives us his righteousness, his perfect life that he lived resisting temptation is then given to us by faith. So that when we trust in Christ, we don't just trust that our sins are put on Him on the cross. That's important, right? Our sins are forgiven because they were uh, punished on the cross with Christ. But His perfect life was also given to us. And we see that in chapter 4, that Jesus was the perfect man. He resisted the devil's temptations. Then the rest of chapter 4, we see Him beginning to call disciples to Himself. He's calling, calling, calling followers to Himself. Getting my words mixed up there. Calling followers to Himself to follow Him, to be His disciples, and to form this new Israel, this new people of God. He begins healing people. He begins just outwardly demonstrating that He is the Savior. He is the one that they've all been waiting for. And then chapter 5, 6, and 7, where we are today, we're right in the middle of that in chapter 6. 5, 6, and 7, then is His first sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. The introduction in chapter 5 is that you cannot work yourself to God. Again, it's different than every other religion. It's different than how the religious leaders saw religion of that day. In the Beatitudes, says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means spiritually bankrupt. You can't come to God saying, God, look at me, I'm impressive. You have to come to God and say, God, I don't have anything. Will you have mercy on me? Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, the meek, the humble, the people that know they don't have it together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For only when we hunger and thirst for righteousness that we do not have, can we be given freely the righteousness that only God has. That is grace. That is the salvation that we accept by faith in Jesus, in God, and who He is and what He has done for us. So that introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is foundational. You can't interpret the rest of the Sermon on the Mount apart from that. And that transforms everything else. And he says, now hold on. I just kind of smacked down the religious leaders by saying you can't come with your own righteousness, but make sure you understand. He says in 517, I haven't come to abolish that righteousness. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill that righteousness. So Jesus makes it clear. He still wants us to be righteous. We just can't be righteous on our own. We have to approach God and say, I don't have this righteousness. I hunger and thirst for it. And by faith, he gives it to us. And then we begin to live this new righteousness. We begin to live in this new way and Jesus says he wants us to be perfect like our heavenly father is perfect. And Jesus uses this new terminology and that's why we've titled the sermon this morning Walk with Your Father because he tries to help us to understand that we have a father that loves us. We have a father that gives himself for us and he walks along side With us, And he doesn't wait for us to prove ourselves. He doesn't wait for us to work our way to him. But he comes down and kneels down to our level and brings us to himself. And he begins to give us this new way of looking at God. We talked when we looked at Matthew a couple of years ago that that this was new. There were a couple of verses and a couple of references in the Old Testament where it talks about God. Kind of the abstract concept of being a father to the fatherless. But in general, they they weren't practicing this. They weren't saying Father. They weren't calling God Father. They didn't see Him as Father. That was a new thing that Jesus is introducing here. An intimacy. So when we walk into the new year, we have to be careful that we're not walking into the new year thinking, I'm just going to do better this year. And God's going to be impressed with me. No, we have to recognize we don't have it. God gives it to us as a free gift. And because of that, then we can live differently. Okay, That's why we live differently in the new year. Because He has given us freely His righteousness, freely His love. So with that small introduction, let's uh, read chapter 6. Okay, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to back up one verse and read the last verse of chapter 5, and we'll read through. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So this, again, is the problem with other religions. We do our religion externally to be seen, right? It's something we're trying to put on. And he's going to use this phrase again and again, hypocrites. This phrase, hypocrites, means literally a play actor, someone who's wearing a mask, someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. He says in verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites, as the actors do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. They've already gotten... reward they're going to get. They don't have a relationship with their father. They're just trying to impress other people. And that impressing other people is all they're really going to get then. He says in verse three, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving can be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've, they have the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see a pattern coming here. He's saying, don't do these spiritual disciplines to be seen by other people, but have a secret relationship with your Father. Have a Father that loves you and relate to Him in secret. It's an intimate relationship. It's not something that's on display for everyone else to see. Now, we don't want to take it too far, right? Jesus is using hyperbole. He's not saying that it's wrong if anyone ever sees any aspect of our spiritual life. He's saying the motivation cannot be just so everybody sees you. That can't be the motivation of your spiritual life. He goes on, verse 7, And when you pray, don't keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles or the nations do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. You don't have to use a bunch of words. Verse 8, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He already knows. Verse 9, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward already. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. I want to sum up with 633, something he says at the end of this section. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you come to us as a Father, that we can call you Father. That we came to you empty-handed. That we came to you heavy-laden and tired and weary, sinful and rebellious. And you gave us life. You gave us forgiveness. You brought us back to yourself. You pick us up, dust us off and you're renewing us. Father, I pray in 2011 that this would be a year that we walk with you. That we don't live a separate life trying to clean ourselves up before we come to that we would walk with you accepting the forgiveness that we have and living in newness of life. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about um, this idea, this intimacy that we have with our Heavenly Father, this really new concept that Jesus is kind of unfolding for us in the New Testament, I was thinking about the joy I have being a father and being a father to my daughters and being a father to my son and what a blessing that is and the intimate relationship I get to have with them. And I was remembering uh, one time in particular when we lived in St. Louis and our next door neighbor had a son about a year younger than my son. And I don't remember the ages exactly, but I think he was almost two and my son was almost three. So they were pretty small. And my next door neighbor happened to be a college football player and apparently had been working with his son on football a little more than I had worked with my three-year-old, which was, was zero at that time. And I mean, we bought him the football that he slept with in his crib, you know, the standards, but we hadn't really practiced a whole lot. And uh, and so I remember being over at my friend's house and this little two-year-old is like zipping spirals at, at two years old. And I was thinking, man, my son is behind, you know, like we need to get with the program here. He's not throwing the ball. And um, so basically I, I went and got my son's little uh, little Nerf football and woke him up from his nap and threw him the ball. I was like, come on, man. You need to get with the program, all right? I'm going to leave you the ball in here. I want you to work on it and call me when you've got this spiral thing down, okay? And so I left him in there for a couple of hours, and, you know, until he figured out how to do it on his own, right? And you all know I'm joking, right? Okay, I'm, I'm joking. I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying to be absurd here because that's, that's not how you father a young boy, And uh, sorry to tell you dads that are actually trying this sort of thing at home. It doesn't work, okay? I'm rebuking you right now through humor. Um, You you can't father a child that way. You have to come alongside them and teach them, right? My my neighbor's son wasn't zipping spirals because he just came out of the womb throwing spirals. His dad had actually taught him, right? And, And same thing for me. I then began to teach my son how to throw the ball. I then began to walk him through, step by step, what that looked like. So that now he can throw the ball just fine. But it's not because I woke him up from his nap and told him to teach himself. It's because as his father, I met him where he was. And I've walked with him since then. And continued to walk with him. And that's what fatherhood looks like. And we need to understand that when we read this sermon. Where Jesus is beginning to introduce this. Later on in the sermon in chapter 7, we'll jump ahead. And in chapter 7 he says, ask and seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. This is repeated also in Luke, but in Matthew 7, he says, Who of you fathers, if your son asks for a loaf of bread, would give him a a snake or scorpion, right? He says, How much more is your heavenly Father going to give you good things if you ask? He says, You fathers, you earthly fathers, though you are evil, still know how to give good gifts to your children. I love that. I love that caveat that Jesus makes, because some of us have had bad fathers, Right? And some of us are bad fathers. Jesus makes the point, even bad fathers kind of have a rough concept of what it looks like to be a good father. Right? Even if you've had a bad father, the reason that you can even say, my father didn't measure up, is you have this concept of what righteousness and what love really looks like. And so if your father didn't measure up to that, you have this concept. In Ephesians, Paul says, every family gets its name from our heavenly father, the true father. So Jesus makes it very clear that even if you haven't had a good father, that your heavenly father is that good father. He's the father that really knows how to love you the way that you need to be loved. And so as Jesus unfolds these spiritual disciplines for us, as he talks about giving, as he talks about prayer, and as he talks about fasting, he's not saying, go get your stuff together, and then when you have your stuff together, then God will approve of you. No, he's saying that walk with God in this intimate father relationship, and you will find reward in that. Don't feel like you have to fake it. Don't feel like you have to pretend like the hypocrites do. Don't feel like you have to put on this mask of of false spirituality. We have to remember the foundation that he laid in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. You have to come to God broken. You have to come to God asking him for his strength, and he will, as a good father, meet you where you are. And in 2011, he will walk with you. He will go with you. So I'm calling you to walk with this Heavenly Father that loves you. I'm not calling you to like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do better in 2011. I'm calling you to live a new life because you have a Heavenly Father that loves you. So the first thing that I want us to look at is the first thing Jesus looks at is, is giving. He talks about giving. He talks about the difference between giving as a religious hypocrite and giving as someone who has an intimate relationship with your Father. And this is the giving. He says, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites or the actors do in the uh, says synagogues, literally the word synagogue just means gathering, right? So gathering place like church building or uh, convention center or wherever it might be that people gather together in communities. He's saying in those gathering places, in those synagogues and on the streets, don't announce your are giving with trumpets, right? It's not about you giving. It's about the needy needing and you meeting that need the same way that our heavenly father meets our need. So he lays this foundation in chapter 5 that we come to God needy, and he meets our needs. And so because we have a God who meets our needs as needy people, then we should give just like our Heavenly Father gives and meet other people's needs. And we're not doing it to go, hey, look at me, look at how great I am. We already have a restored relationship with our Father by God's grace. Because of what he's done, we have that good relationship. We're walking with him, and so we should give out of that relationship, not giving, grasping for A relationship. He gives it to us, and so then we give to others in need. He he uses some hyperbole in verse 3. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? That requires you to be a, a, no offense, like a stroke victim. It is the only way that this could literally uh, come true in your life, right? There would have to be something medically or psychologically wrong with you to fulfill verse 3. So I think what Jesus is doing, he's trying to make an overstatement. He's trying to say, don't be all wrapped up in yourself. Don't be focused on what you're doing. Don't be looking at yourself. So, so the interpretation here is not to literally fulfill verse 3. The interpretation is don't be like the hypocrites. Have a real, honest, intimate relationship with your Heavenly Father and give out of that. You give to help people that are in need. You don't give to impress people. You don't give to be seen. You don't give to broadcast it to other people. You give because there's need and because your Heavenly Father has given to you. And that's the difference that Jesus is trying to communicate here. He says in verse 4, Your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, you have this secret, intimate relationship with your Father. In Romans, it talks about the Spirit in our heart helping us to cry out, Abba, Father. Again, this requires a spiritual transformation. If you don't see God that way, if you don't see God as loving and kind to you, it's because you haven't come to grips with the gospel, the good news, that you're a sinner, and Jesus gave His life for you, to love you, And forgive you. And as you understand that, and as you believe in that good news, as you turn your life over to that good news, you'll begin to see God as your Abba Father, as your daddy that loves you, the good father maybe that you never had. I have a picture here of of, uh, a missionary giving uh, some candies to some kids in Cambodia. Uh, Kids are very needy there in Cambodia. We have brochures in the hallway for Compassion International and brochures for the International Justice Mission. These are international ways that you can give to the needy. Um, I don't know what ways God has moved you to give. I'm sure that the Spirit is is working in you oftentimes as a new year comes. We're kind of thinking of new ways that we can live a new life and live in new ways and establish new New Year's resolutions. I want to encourage you that God wants you to give. And really, we've said this before, it's a hallmark of every religion. Every religion gives. The difference is that we would give out of genuine grace, out of knowing that God has given to us, knowing that we have a generous God, and that's why we give. In James it says the true religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And so that's just a foundation there, that we should be the kind of people that care for those that don't have anyone to care for them. As I said, the previous references in the Old Testament to God as Father were that He is a Father to the fatherless. And so we communicate the gospel when we give to people that have nothing. That's a way that we communicate the gospel. There's two ways that we do that. We communicate by giving to them in Jesus' name and helping them. We also communicate the gospel by just communicating the gospel, right? That's another way that we give to people that are needy. You may have neighbors, and you've been loving them, and you've established a good relationship with them, and you've helped them, and you've been there for them. You also need to share the hope that we have in Jesus'. Invite them to church or have a conversation with them about what they believe. We also have missionaries. We talked about earlier that we sponsor all over the world. We mentioned that earlier in our service. You can give to specific missionaries that are sharing this hope that we have in Jesus all over the world. There are different ways that you can give to those that are in need. Give to those that are missing something in life. Like I said, there's, you can kind of think of it as the physical needs, the basic needs of caring for the orphans and widows. Those words in Greek, really at their base, just kind of mean people that are on their own, right? Orphan means children that are abandoned, that are on their own. Widow means a woman who is on her own, who has no man to care for her. And so that's what the Bible says about giving, that that's true religion, is to give to those that are on their own, that are needy, and to share the hope that we have in Jesus with those people as well. I'd encourage you in the new year to give um, to one of those prospects. As, As we move forward, as we establish our new budget for the new year, we'll be calling you to give to this church. We believe that we are helping people that are needy meet Jesus. We believe as we proclaim him week to week that this is something worth giving to, that the enterprise that we are engaging in here is worthwhile, that we're helping people to find hope in Jesus Christ. So we encourage you to partner with us. We encourage you to partner with other ministries Uh, Throughout the world to give to those that are in need. The other thing that I want us to look at is what I'm saying here is wish like your father. The word I used was wish to try to kind of break our normal thinking on this. He's talking about prayer in this section, but he says that we should pray according to our father's will, right? We should pray according to our father's will. And that word literally means wish or desire. We should want what God wants. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. He says, I tell you the the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now again, we have to be careful not to be hyper-literal here. Jesus is trying to make a a distinction in motives. So does that mean it's wrong to not pray in a closet? Any of you ever prayed anywhere else besides a closet? You're in sin, right? Now, see, what he's saying is he's saying your motivation should be different. Your motivation shouldn't be, I pray to be seen. Look at me, I'm praying, right? Your, your motivation should be the intimate, close, personal relationship you have with God. You should want to talk to Him. You should want what He wants. He wants a relationship with you. He wishes for a restored world, and that's what you should wish for. That's what you should ask for. That's what you should talk to Him About, He says in verse 7, When you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because there are many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Prayer is not a trick, right? How many of you have ever uh, had to pray in public, or maybe you thought you might have to pray in public and it caused you great distress, right? Fear, because you're like, I don't know the special prayer words I'm supposed to use, Right? And Jesus is addressing that right here. He's saying, you don't babble on with special words. You don't have to have some special language. You don't have to go to school and learn the right words to talk to Him." He gives us a very basic roadmap here. And in verse 8, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, for a lot of people, if, if you're overly theological, I was sharing earlier this morning, I come from kind of a Reformed theological perspective, and in that theological school, it tends, to, it tends to emphasize the sovereignty and the bigness of God, right? Which is very biblical and very important. What sadly happens sometimes is when we emphasize the bigness of God and the fact that He knows what we need before we ask Him, that can make us hesitate to ask Him, right? Sometimes we can pull back and think, well, well God's in control, he's, he's got it, I don't really need to talk to Him about it. What's interesting is in verse 8, he says that. He says that God knows, so that should motivate us to, to not use a bunch of fancy words, but just to talk to him. That should motivate us to actually talk to God, because he loves us. And he knows what we need, he wants us to talk to him. Do you understand? The, this thing that for many of us makes us not talk to God, Jesus uses as a motivator. God is in control. God knows what you need before you ask him. So therefore pray like this. So therefore, just talk to Him as if He's your Father and He loves you. He says in verse 9, Pray then this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He balances there the intimacy and the greatness of God. He's like a father that kneels down to pick you up and to love you and to, to brush the dirt off of you when you're in trouble. But it also says, Hallowed be your name. That word is holy be your name. May your name be set apart uh, this is reminiscent of the Old Testament word glory, right? We talk about glorifying God. And the word glory, literally in Hebrew, means great or heavy or even fat, okay? Eli fell over and broke his neck in the Old Testament because he was so glorious, is what the, uh, is what the text says, literally in Hebrew. And so we want to make God's name heavy. We want to say, hallowed be your name, glorious be your name, heavy be your name. God, we want your name to be great, And huge and awesome, and that's what we're asking for. We're wishing for what God wishes for. God knows that the world that He is making and redeeming is the best of all possible worlds. He is redeeming heaven and earth, and we should want what He wants. We should wish for what God wishes for. We should talk to Him as if He's our Father and He loves us. Our Father, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Again, this word for wish, for desire. Your desire here. Be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Notice it says, it doesn't say, give us today our daily Cadillac, right? Give us today our daily prosperity. Give us today all our health and wealth and riches. No, he says, give us our basics. God, just can you just help us out and make sure our basics are in order? And then it moves quickly on to other things. He says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We should wish for what God wishes for. God wishes for us to be sanctified. He's called us to be holy, and so we should pray that we would be holy as well. God wants His will to be done, His kingdom to blossom on this earth. And He calls us to want the same thing. We should want that as well. His righteousness to be seen. His name to be weighty. He wants us to have an intimate relationship with Him, to talk to Him as Father. And so we pray that, Father in heaven. And then he gives a little explanation on this forgiving the debtors thing in verse 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now Jesus purposely makes this an uncomfortable way of thinking about it, right? When you read the rest of the New Testament, you get a little more organized, systematic theology, and it it becomes clear that God forgives us, which enables us to forgive other people. But Jesus kind of leaves us hanging here. He makes us uncomfortable. He just kind of states it in the bold, messy way where he says, if, if you're not forgiving people, God's not going to forgive you. And I would say that's a good red flag for you, but maybe you don't know the gospel. Maybe you're not really in. Maybe you're just in the building, but you're not in Christ. Maybe you are attending to spiritual things, but you're not really trusting in Jesus and who he is. Again, going back to the foundation that he's laid in in Matthew chapter 5, if you approach him as spiritually bankrupt and I have nothing to offer you, God, and I need your righteousness because I don't have a righteousness of my own, then you would see people differently. Then you would actually forgive other people. Then you wouldn't hold things over people. I want you to think about the people in your life right now that you're holding a grudge against. I know there may be people right now that you're struggling to forgive. And I would encourage you to dwell on the God that has forgiven you so that you would be able to forgive these people. I'm not saying that you should feel right about an injustice that's been done to you. I'm not saying you should think that that's good or okay. I'm asking you to forgive them because God's forgiven you. We were unjust. We did bad things and God forgave us and he calls on us to forgive others as he does. Not sweeping it under the rug, not saying, oh, it was okay, oh, it didn't really matter. No, it was wrong, and I forgive it. God calls us to forgive people in the same way. That means not holding it over them, not saying, I'm going to mistreat them, not saying, well, they were mean to me, so now I'm going to be mean to them, or I'm going to give them the cold shoulder, right? That's the way we often do it as Christians. We say, well, I'm not going to take vengeance on them, I'm not going to go throw rocks through the windows, I'm just never going to talk to them again, Right? How many of you try that one and think that's the Christian way to uh, forgive people? That's not really forgiveness. Turning away from someone, that's not loving them. And we are called to love. And true forgiveness is to love others. Well, the last thing that we see is that we should sacrifice like our father. Oh, there's a little kid praying. I forgot that picture. I just wanted to use this as an image to remind you again that you don't have to use special words, right? Don't grow up and start using special grown-up prayer words but continue to have that childlike faith. You just talk to God as if he's your daddy and he loves you. He, he wants to be with you. The last thing we see is that we should sacrifice like our father. I, I purposely use the sacrifice word to think about fasting. We have a God who gave of himself to save us, right? He gave his life. He gave his son to die for us. That's an important central part of understanding of, of who God is and how he's made the world. And so when we fast, we're going without also for the sake of others. Jesus even in John chapter 4 talks about going without food because His food is to do the will of His Father. How many of you have ever been doing a really important project, you've been kind of wrapped up in something you're working on and you just forgot to eat? Have you ever done that? Any of you? Yeah, I've even done that. And I'm pretty much, I'm one of those high metabolism people that's hungry all the time. Right? I'm always hungry. I eat a lot. Uh, but sometimes if I'm really engrossed in something, I'll just I'll forget to eat, right? Because I've, I've got something better going on, right? I'm focused on something else. I'm into something else. And I believe sometimes we can see fasting that way. We're not even focused on the things of this world, but we're focused on the priorities of our Heavenly Father. That's certainly how Jesus portrayed it in John chapter 4. He's like, I'm, I'm doing the Father's business. I'm not really worried about eating right now. Fasting literally, the, the Greek word, just means not eat. That's what the word is. It means go without. And so literally it can be not eating for the sake of showing repentance or for the sake of uh, just focusing on God and who He is, praying, communing with Him, telling yourself, I don't need the things of this world. I just need God and God is enough, right? It's always temporary. It's never forever because we are humans and you can't go without food forever, right? It's only something you can do temporarily. But it's a, a discipline, an exercise Uh, to discipline your passions and to say, you know what, I need God more than I need food. It can also be something figurative, right? It doesn't necessarily mean going without food. It can just mean going without something that you fill yourself with. What are the things that you fill yourself with, right? Uh, Do you fill yourself with your emails and your Facebook? Do you fill yourself with time with friends? Do you fill yourself with movies? Maybe you need to fast from those things. Again, he doesn't say go without it for the rest of your life, But it can be a discipline of temporarily going without certain things, not filling yourself with the things you always fill yourself with so that you can focus on filling yourself with God. He says, When you fast, in verse 16 of Matthew 6, don't look somber like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Now in our world... Oil doesn't quite translate, but we would say like shave, right? And use your aftershave lotion and your conditioner and shampoo and all that. You know, he's just saying do your basic hygiene, right? Clean up, get yourself together. Don't like walk around looking all sad and beat up and dirty because you're fasting. He's saying just live your normal life and fast is something that you do between you and your heavenly father. Again, it's born out of this intimate relationship that we have with a father that's walking with us. It's not something we do to impress other people say, hey, church, look at me, I'm fasting, or hey, uh, pagan friend, look at me, I'm fasting because I'm more spiritual than you, right? No, it's just, it's something you're doing to commune with God, to communicate with Him, to talk with Him. It's interesting that he says, when you fast, right? Because, I'm not going to have you raise your hands on this one, most of us have probably never fasted. It's like a forgotten spiritual discipline in our world. I'm not sure I completely understand why, um, I I think part of it is just because we have food all the time, everywhere, all around us. And it's kind of a murky thing in scriptures, but it's assumed that we would fast. It's an assumed spiritual discipline. He says, when you fast, he's assuming that we're going to fast, right? Later on in Matthew 9, uh, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and his disciples. And they were saying, hey, why don't you and your boys fast? Because we fast and the Pharisees fast. Everybody else fasts. All the other religions fast. There seems like there's something wrong Jesus, with you and your disciples. And Jesus says, well, it's because I'm here. Jesus says, as long as the bridegroom's with the party, the party's going to go on. So they're celebrating. They're not going to fast. They're not going to mourn while Jesus is with them. He says, but later on I'll be gone, and then my disciples will fast. Well, that's us. He's gone. We're waiting for him to come back. We're his disciples. So it's time to fast, right? Throughout Scripture, fasting is both a display of of mourning and sadness over something, like we miss you, and it's also a way of focusing. Those are the two things that we express when we fast. And I want to give you some guidance here for how you might actually try it. Because I know this is not something I've done very much. I've done it very little in my spiritual life. It's something I want to call us to in 2011, that we would actually fast as a way of communicating with God and knowing Him and disciplining our flesh. He says... Um, this is some advice that I got out of the uh, out of the which book was it? The Celebration of Discipline by by uh, Foster. There's also instruction in the other books on that as well. But one thing that I was that I read is that we should start slowly. It's important to, to remember that because we're not used to fasting, and because we live in America and we eat double portions at every meal, that if you just start off like 24, 36 hour fast, you're going to faint and get sick. Okay? So you have to prepare your body for it. You may eat lighter one week before you fast. And the first time you try to fast, you may just skip a meal or two and just have juice instead of a meal. And when you feel hungry and you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to eat my steering wheel or you know whatever it is, <laughs> you just you just use those hunger pangs right to, to then focus your thoughts on God. To say, God, help me. I, I feel hungry. I, f- I feel like I'm going to die because I haven't had my lunch, but I, I trust that you're enough. I trust that that you're all I need, God. And and use that as a time to have focused prayer and talk with Him. Tell Him, God, I know that you're enough. I know that you gave yourself to save me. I know that you said that man can't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And begin to use that as a way to then engage in conversation with your Heavenly Father who knows you. Again, not as a way to display your spiritual toughness to people around you, but as a way of intimacy with your Father. Um, the other thing you can do then is build from juice fast to so skipping one or two meals to skipping more meals and maybe not even having juice and just having water. I don't recommend going without water. You need to keep having water, but kind of moving from an easier fast to a harder fast. And pray about it and ask the Lord, God, what would you have me to do? And obviously for some of you medically, you shouldn't fast or you need to talk to your doctor about it. But for most healthy folks, this is an okay thing. It's just not something we normally do in America. And then from there you can pray about it, and maybe you might go to several days of a fast. I would ask you, and just in this next month, that as you consider fasting, that you would pray for us as a church as we enter into our new strategic plan for 2011, where the leaders, the elders, and the deacons and the staff are planning things out for 2011. We usually have a strategic planning meeting at the end of January, the third week of January, and in that meeting we kind of present our new plan to the different officers and share that and pray about our goals for the new year, I'd I'd ask you to pray with us for those new plans as you're looking for something to focus your prayer time. And that you would pray that Grace Bible Church would be the church that God wants us to be in this place. That God's will would be done on earth, here, even in Colleen, as it is in heaven. That we would be a part of the unfolding of God's kingdom in this place, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever God takes us. Well, as we conclude, I want us to to go back again to Matthew 6.33 and to remember that as kind of the punctuation point for all of us, for this walking with our Heavenly Father, for this uh, spiritual intimacy with Him. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. As we pursue that relationship with Him, then that new creation, our memory verse for this week in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that new creation will begin to work itself out in our lives. We'll begin to look like new people. Again, we're not doing religious things to impress religious people or impress our pagan friends. We're doing these things because God has transformed us. Because God is our Father. Because He does love us. Because He's pursued us and because He's restored a relationship with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you love us. I thank you for these people here. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all these individual disciplines, that as we seek to be in your word, and as we seek to give, pray, and fast, that we would also seek to be a community that does this together. That we would work uh, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, encouraging each other, confessing our sins one to another, and praying for each other that we can be healed. God, thank you. Thank you that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name.